Right, we left off in Exodus chapter 23, the last lesson. We touched on some rather controversial subjects, and it was a longer-than-usual lesson. And uh, this, this lesson, I believe, is going to be quite a bit shorter and less controversial, but I hope it'll be very encouraging also. So we're in Exodus 23. Of course, we're going through the details of the law of Moses, and uh, a lot of people think, oh, what's, what's that's going to be like the most boring part of the Bible? There's actually a lot of great stuff in here. And... Uh, as I mentioned a couple of times, but I want to just set our minds for what we're reading here. Eusebius talked about the world is like like three levels. There's the, there's the lowest level would be the the, uh, the lifestyle of the pagans. The first step up is the law of Moses, and then the whole stairway. The third level is the gospel. So so this is moving us in the right direction, but not getting us all the way there by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, Paul in Romans 15 said everything written in the past was written to teach us, is written to the Christians. So there's something in here, whether we uh, see it immediately or not. Paul also talked about uh, Colossians chapter 2, about how many of the things in the law of Moses are shadows that are going to be revealed, things to, things that are yet to come. So if we, we look carefully at the shadows, we'll learn some things about the, the reality, the fullness, the substance that, that comes after. So Let's pick up Exodus chapter 23, and uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 10. I'm not going to get very far in the first, uh, I'm just going to read verses 10 to 12. So, Exodus 23, starting verse 10. Uh, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may rest. The son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So uh, uh, this is more, this is expansion on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, the fourth command and the Ten Commandments. But... uh, the, the laws of the Sabbath aren't just about resting every seventh day of the week. It goes beyond that. And uh, so this talks about what you do every seventh year. So the, the uh, uh, there's, a, there's also a rest that takes place on the seventh year. Now, uh, we talked before in chapter 21 about how after some a Jew was a slave for seven years, on the seventh year you let him free. So this this whole idea of there's... There's a liberation, there's a rest, there's a freedom that comes and, and, and associated with number seven, the completeness. Um, uh, we've seen that before. So um, the whole idea, and in, in giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, when God speaks the Ten Commandments, he explains, he ties this resting on the seventh day back to the story of creation. In Genesis 2, the first three verses, it talks about on the seventh day, God rested. He was creating different things the first six, six days. He rested on the seventh day, and that that's the basis for uh, the seventh day being set apart, being holy, being a time for, for us to rest as well. In, in Deuteronomy 5, version of the Ten Commandments, it also ties in the idea that the Lord delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. So that's also connected with us in some way. There's the Sabbath observance. So here, uh, the Sabbath observance is, is expanded on to include no planting or harvesting anything on the seventh year. 
Now, so this is for your fields, but it's also for your vineyards and your olive groves. The land is to lie fallow on the seventh year. And um, and you don't plant anything. You don't work, work the fields. I guess the people took the whole year off if they're farmers. And uh, whatever fruit or crops managed to come up, even though you didn't do anything, uh, you don't eat that either. So you leave it behind for the poor people uh, to eat. And anything that the poor people don't eat, you leave for the wild animals to eat. So that's what God says you do here. Um, so question, I, that leaves me with a few questions. First of all, why would God have this very unusual requirement to do nothing every seven years, don't plant anything, don't harvest anything. And do we learn anything at all about the nature of God from this command? Because, you know, in all the commands of God, we if we look deeply enough, we can learn something about who God is or what God's like. Uh, and, and why would God do this? Some people associate this, people who are familiar with farming, will say, oh, this is crop rotation. So the, the, the idea is that... Uh, that in some ways, if, if you were to plant corn or wheat or one crop in a field year after year after year after year, you would deplete the soil because it's, every crop takes up certain nutrients. So people will, uh, you know, people will rotate the crops so you, you, you don't wear the field out. Or sometimes they'll plant a crop that actually enhances the soil. They'll plant uh, clover or soybeans or something like that. It'll put some nitrogen back in the soil. Uh, so some people think, well, this is an early form of crop rotation. But but that doesn't really fit for a few, a few reasons. For one thing, he says you also leave the vineyard and the olive trees. You don't touch them either. So they're perennials. They're there all the time. So they're, they're not giving the land a rest, but you're not touching, you're not doing anything with them either. So so to me, that doesn't fit that this guy's just trying to enforce some, some uh, ecological crop rotation. And uh, and then all the other thing is with the Sabbath, he also talks about giving the donkeys a rest and giving the, on the seventh day you give the donkeys a rest. You give, and obviously all your plowing animals are going to have a whole year off too. So, uh, and then the other thing about this is, thinking about this, you're you're working and you're counting off the years. Okay, six years ago, five, four, three, two, one year ago, and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, on <laughs> the seventh year we're not going to plant anything, we're not going to harvest anything. We better be storing things up to tide us through during that one year. And let's hope that we have a good year after that, too. So so the people are having to think about this, I think, all the time, of how many years is it going to be till the seventh year comes. And they've got to, they've got to uh, exercise a lot of self-control and faith. Faith meaning, you know, here you are. And the, the, the time for planting comes and you don't do anything and you just believe that God's going to take care of you because you're obeying the commands of God. So this, this, is, uh, uh, this is not in their financial best interest to do this, but, but so God's t- I think God's testing their faith every seven years to do this. Um, one thing I, I think that I see in this is God's concerned about the poor because he doesn't just say, oh, just don't do anything in the seventh year, take it easy. He's saying anything that grows, so anything on your vineyards that grows, the grapes are going to grow anyway, the olive, olives are going to grow anyway, and maybe there's some stuff's going to come up in the field anyway, okay, if you leave it. So, uh, 
uh, you know, they don't have modern high-efficiency reaping methods, so obviously there's going to be some seed that's re- replanted and, and scattered there. So uh, God's concerned about the poor here. He says, whatever grows during the seventh year, you don't touch it. Leave it for the poor. And I think of the story of Ruth where, the, you know, the, the, uh, they leave some, you know, you don't harvest to the end of the field, you'll leave some for the poor. So God's always looking out for the poor, and he wants to teach his people to do the same thing. So that tells me something about the nature of, the, of God here in, in that he, he sets up his requirements based on that. Uh, the other thing I notice here is may seem a little strange, but God cares about all the animals too. So he's, uh, uh, God says, whatever the poor don't eat, he doesn't say, you can go in and pick that stuff up. He says, whatever the poor don't eat, leave it for the wild animals and give them something to eat. I say, well, this is, this is an interesting way of seeing God, as God cares about the wild animals. He, he provides for them too, and he wants us to be concerned about that. Now, I was, uh, Thing about yesterday, we had a uh, memorial service uh, for Chris, and afterwards we had lunch together and uh, some time of fellowship. And uh, Adam came out with this. Adam's not here today, so usually, usually I take a take a few shots at Adam during the lesson, <laughs> or he'll take a few shots at me. Adam's not here today. Uh, he's he's. Uh, but uh, Adam came out with a big jar. It looked like it had seeds or nuts or something in it. And he, he asked his mother, uh, is it okay if we put this out to feed the squirrels now? And I, I was thinking, wait a minute, this must be wrong. You don't feed squirrels, you feed birds. You, you try to come up with ways to keep the squirrels from eating all the bird feed. But that's not Adam. Adam has a child's heart. And Adam likes all the little wild animals, even the squirrels, which... which, which uh, you know, drive some many of us nuts because they get into everything. So, but Adam likes the squirrels and he gives them names and he wants to feed them. And uh, you know, this there's something of the heart of God in that. I also remember Alice and I were were over in Turkey a few years uh, uh, about a year ago. We're over in Turkey and uh, we're eating at an outdoor restaurant. And you may remember this this story, Allison. And uh, <laughs> yeah, Allison does remember this story. So we're eating at a restaurant. And uh, with a, with a, a family there of, of, of refugees who were living in Turkey, and the father there uh, of this family uh, was taking food off of his plate, and you know little pieces of, of meat or fish off his plate, and, and sneaking it under the table, and he was feeding cats, wild cats, in the restaurant, in the outdoor restaurant. And it's driving me nuts. It's like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that because what happens if you feed cats? First of all, they tell all their friends, hey, here's where to go get the food. And so you, you can't possibly get rid of them. So I'm thinking, what is this guy thinking? But, uh, but you know, then I, then I started, I stopped and I thought, I said, well, you know, I wouldn't do this, but but he's a very kind person. He was just, you know, he's just a really, he's a genuinely kind person. And that, that came out in the way that he was, he was treating the animals too. So I can't get quite get there to feeding wild cats in a restaurant uh, <laughs> under the sneaking food under the table. But there's something, there's something, there's something noble about that. There's something good. And it was, it was reflect. He's just a kind person. It was, that's who the guy was, even to his animals. And I think about the proverb, 
that says Proverbs 12 and, and, and verse 10 in the New King James says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Or in, in the Septuagint, uh, it says, uh, uh, very similarly, it says, A righteous man has compassion on the lives of his cattle, but the affections of the ungodly are holy without mercy. So this the idea is, is a righteous person is going to be kind even to animals. You know, that they look at, even animals that they're, they're using for work or for milk or for eggs or whatever it is, that, they're, that the, somebody who is a righteous person, they're, they're just kind. They're kind to, to uh, their friends, they're kind to their family, they're even kind to their animals. That's just, that's just the, the, the outpouring of their heart. That's the way they, they treat animals. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's uh, so to me, there's something to, to learn and appreciate about the nature of God here is that he, he, he cares about, even about the animals, and it comes out in this, this Sabbath requirement here. Well, let's continue in verse 13. So here there is a requirement. This is talking about three special feasts during the year where all the men are supposed to appear before the Lord. And uh, there's a lot in here, actually. In, in, in Exodus 23, starting verse 13. Now, in everything I said to you, be circumspect and do not invoke the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Keep a feast to me three times in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of the new grains. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor you sowed in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit from your laborers from the field. Three times of the year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. When I cast out the nations from before your face and expand your borders, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain till morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a lamb in its mother's milk. All right, I want to focus on the three feasts here. It says, All the Israelite men were to appear before the Lord three times of the year, at the time of three annual feasts. So what are these feasts? These don't sound, maybe one sounds familiar, the other two not so much. The three feasts, uh, the first feast is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now that's the one we're most familiar with. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is the same as the Feast of Passover because basically we talked about this earlier in Exodus 12, Exodus 13. In the story of the Passover, the Passover lamb was slain and then for the next seven days they ate the bread without yeast. And they'd hold, hold that whole period of time, the Passover, and then the days that followed, that would be the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, or that would be the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, they talk about, talk about it either way. So, and then it was a special feast on the, on the, on the last day of that as well. Uh, so the feast began on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, the first month of the year. It talks about this in Leviticus 23 as well. So this is the first feast where all the men had to appear before the Lord. Second feast is the Feast of Harvest, which is also called Feast, it's got several other names, Feast of the First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, that's what the Jews typically call it, 
or more familiar to the Christians, Pentecost. Uh, this is associated with the beginning of the harvest. All right. So it was held on the sixth day of the third month at the start of the wheat harvest. It talks about that in Exodus 34. And the reason the Jews called it the Feast of Weeks, because how many days are there in a week? Seven. Okay. If you count seven weeks or seven sevens, that's 49 days plus throw one, one more and you get 50 days. So they call the Feast of the Weeks because there were a week of weeks that this was from the time of the Passover. So it'd be you know, 49 days plus one more would be the, the observance of this feast of the first fruits or the, the harvest, the feast of weeks. So it's, it's a week of weeks after Pentecost, I'm sorry, after Passover. Um, and the name Pentecost, I, Ava and I are in Greek class together, and I asked Ava at the beginning of class, what's the Greek word for 50? It's pendekonta. So that's the uh, uh, pendekonta, which sounds a whole lot like Pentecost because that's basically where the word comes from. So it's 50 days afterwards. That's where the word Pentecost comes from. So uh, whether you call it the Pentecost, which the Christians do, or the Feast of Weeks, it's, it's referring to the same period of time. So that's the second uh, uh, festival. So knowing it's the same thing as Pentecost, aha, that's a significance to Christians who think of Acts chapter 2. And then the third festival... Feast of the Ingathering, but it's also called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this was the uh, uh, this was uh, at the end of the year. This was a seven-day festival started on the fifteenth day of the month. Talks about that in Leviticus twenty-three, and uh, this is one I'm sure that the kids really enjoyed because what you would do on this festival is you would go out and live outside, you'd build little uh, booths or, or you know, uh, uh, temporary structures outside yeah. out of, brand, out of, like, yeah, forts. That's what David's saying, uh, forts. As a, as a kid, this would be like building a fort outside. So you build a little temporary structure with branches and sticks, and you live inside of that for seven days. Now, why in the world would you leave your comfortable house to live in a place like that? Because this was a, an annual reminder of the fact that the Jews were in the wilderness for 40 years. That they, you know, they they had to tough it for a long period of time. So this was a throwback to them to remind them of the story. So uh, the remind that the, how God delivered them uh, from Egypt and and taken took them through the wilderness. So these are the three the three feasts: the uh, unleavened bread, the harvest, the end gathering. All the men had to show up wherever they were. They they come before the Lord uh, at that time. Now. The significance of these three feasts, knowing what these three feasts were and the fact that all the men had to show up in Jerusalem where the temple was, it helps some of the pieces of the New Testament to fit together a little better. I'll give you an example. Mary and Joseph, there's a story of Jesus when he's 12 years old and uh, and uh, his parents lose track of him and can't find him and, and uh, they think he's with his relatives. It's in... Uh, Talks about that in, in Luke chapter two, starting at verse forty-one. Uh, this just understanding what this feast is about will will help you appreciate this a little more. It says his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. 
When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind them in Jerusalem, and Joseph's mother didn't know it. So, and we know what happens after that in the story. They, they find him uh, teaching in the temple. So, but this is what they do. Mary and Joseph, following the law of Moses, every year they go down to, wherever they were, they go down to Jerusalem, and because that's all the men had to appear before the Lord at this point in time. And that was their custom. Uh, John uh, 7, Jesus going up to Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and that's what it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus cried out, if anyone first thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he's saying that on the on the, the, the last day of the of the, the feast of, of the of the tabernacles. And and then the Passover, Feast of the Unleavened Bread. I mean, this is of tremendous significance here. Not only, I mean, in Jesus' ministry, there are several times where he's talking about him going to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. This is why, because all the men had to go to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And then Paul is doing, Paul is the same thing in, in the book of Acts. We see Paul talking about uh, the Jewish calendar and the Passover, and of course, the Last Supper and the crucifixion of Jesus are all totally tied up with the, the, the time of the Passover. Uh, and then Pentecost, for Christians, Acts chapter 2. That takes place on the day of Pentecost. That's the beginning of the church. And uh, with that in mind, let's read Acts chapter 2 from the beginning. Acts chapter 2, and verse 1, says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then... Uh, says, suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rushing of a mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. One sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak to, uh, Galileans? How is it we hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking, mock them, saying uh, they're full of new wine. So I mean, why is it that all these Jews from all over the world, I mean, they're from, from, they're from uh, Mesopotamia, they're from uh, Asia Minor, from Turkey, from North Africa, from Egypt, from Arabia, from Rome, they're from, they're from Europe and, and, and the Middle East and Africa, all different places, they're all gathered together in Jerusalem because it's Pentecost, because that's what God said. This is one of the three times of the year when all the males are supposed to come to Jerusalem. So God used this. This is why they're all there. Um, so, uh, so, a little, so understanding these events and, and what had to happen, what God said, will help us to understand several of the stories in context when we're reading and it's talking about these things in the New Testament. So it's important for that. Uh, also, there's a spiritual significance. In Colossians, it talks about the, in the law were the shadows that were later on fulfilled by the reality. So all these three, these three events were all foreshadowing 
something significant in the in the story of the the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. Paul explains this, 1 Corinthians 5. Let's read, let's turn there. So what's the significance? Of, we're going to look at each of the significance of each of the three feasts where all the men had to gather. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's addressing sin in the church. He says, you're glorying, in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. For in Greece, indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is, he's using this, he's saying, this feast that the Jews had to observe was a foreshadowing the feast that we need to observe. The Passover, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, and now we eat the bread without yeast. We're the ones who are participating in the fulfillment of, of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread right now. So he, he bases it on it. So that's the significance uh, of that, uh, of, of the first feast. The second feast was Pentecost. And as we just mentioned, Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So it's seven weeks, um, seven weeks after the Passover. So Jesus was killed at the time of the Passover. Seven weeks later... The Jews are all gathered together, the men from all these different countries of the world, seven weeks after Jesus is crucified. And God has worked all of this out that this would be the exact time. That's what Jesus said after he rose from the dead. Wait in Jerusalem. So God orchestrated this that seven weeks later that the gospel would be preached. So Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches the gospel uh, that Jesus is the Messiah who came, that he rose from the dead. He is the king over the kingdom of David, and you just crucified him. The Jews are crucified him. And they said, what do we need to do? And he says in Acts 2.38, he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the Holy Spirit. And it says 3,000 were baptized that day, and that was the beginning of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. You have the beginning of the church, and the gospel spread to people from all these different nations who were gathered together in Jerusalem. So it's amazing to me, God had planned the, the calendar out 1,400 years in advance when he gave these directions to Moses. He says, all the men are to gather together. And they did that for 1,400 years in preparation for Acts chapter 2 when God pulled this all together uh, for, for, for a wonderful purpose and basically planted, started at the beginning of the church. So, so uh, the first, the first uh, of the three feasts was the sacrifice of Christ, was foreshadowing that. And, and getting all the sin out afterwards. The second one was the beginning of the church. And so what about the third? What about the, 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 the one that the kids like with the little huts and the, the, the forts and the, the Feast of Tabernacles? What about that one? What's that, what's that all about? Uh, well, 
the picture that a tabernacle or there's a contrast between the the permanent house and the the tent the tabernacle which is used throughout scriptures i mean the beginning uh coming down from mount sinai the uh god set up a uh, the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure, it's a portable, uh, portable temporary structure that the, the Jews could move around from place to place. At the time of Solomon, that is changed into a temple, which is a permanent structure, the Solomon and the king's after. So we see that the, 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 the temporary comes first, the, the tent, the tabernacle, it's replaced by the permanent structure uh, that comes afterwards. In Acts chapter 15... The apostles are gathered together and they're trying to figure out. Acts chapter 2, the kingdom is opened up to people from all nations, but they're all Jews. They're all Jews or converts to Judaism. In Acts chapter 15, they start having Gentiles coming into the church and they're wrestling with this question. What do we do with all these Gentiles? I mean, they're not, they haven't been converted to Judaism. Do we need to circumcise them? Do we need to teach them about all the teachings of Moses. And let's turn to Acts chapter 15. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, prophecy here that James explains that, that I had missed for many years. In Acts chapter 15, he's quoting, from, quoting a prophecy from Amos that has to do with, he uses this illustration about the tabernacle, the, the temporary structure. Acts chapter 15, verse 13. After they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known from God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So here he's talking, he says this, I think what he's saying is this is a prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus. He says, God says, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. The point that he's making is, God's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David that's fallen down. He's done that in, in resurrecting Jesus from the dead. And then it says, after that, uh, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. So he says, all right. God has raised Jesus up. He's restored the fallen tabernacle of David, tabernacle referring to his body. So therefore, a kingdom can be opened up to the Gentiles. This is God's plan all the way along. So what, what Peter, the vision that Peter saw is confirmed by Amos, uh, and that's uh, from uh, Amos chapter 9, verses 11-12. So, uh, so this idea of the, of the tabernacle as a is referring to a physical, the physical body of a person uh, who dies. Peter, when he's speaking in in Second Peter, uh, uses a similar language. He says Second uh, Peter chapter one. He says, "I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent." He's using a poetic language to describe his body. To stir you up by reminding you, knowing shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me 
Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So he's saying, he saw his body as being like a tent. I'm going to put my tent away, pack it up. And, uh, you know, as, as God told me, but I want to remind you before I put away the tent. So, and then Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is, this to me is the, the most uh, compelling uh, a verse to help me to understand what this Feast of the Tabernacles is all about. Paul, the, the, the idea of, of the tabernacle of the temporary structure referring to our bodies 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us by the Spirit as a uh, given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So he's talking here about, he says, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. So the tent obviously is referring to our bodies. We have to look forward to a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. So this is, and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this too, is that, you know, our body is going to be changed and transformed into a permanent body, a permanent structure, like the, the, the tabernacle getting replaced with the temple. It's going to be replaced with something provided by God in a transformation that will not decay and will not be destroyed. So uh, it's a wonderful hope that we have. So this this idea of the festival of tabernacles, so, First two festivals, we've already seen the realization of those. We've seen the crucifixion of Jesus. We've seen the beginning of the church. I think it seems to me the third festival here is is really uh, foreshadowing the the time when it's it's talking about how our tabernacle will be replaced, our temporary home that we're living in a temporary structure and it's going to be replaced. So I think it's it's also it's the feast of the close out of the harvest really so the three fast festivals the first one is the crucifixion of jesus our passover lamb and, and the time after that getting rid of the yeast the second one the festival harvest weeks in gathering or pentecost it was foreshadowing the beginning of the harvest the spiritual harvest of souls in acts chapter 2 3,000 people were baptized beginning of the church and the third one, it seems to me, is something that is yet to come. This is bringing in the festival of bringing in the final harvest. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says that the angels bring in the harvest at the end of the age. So uh, uh, at that time, our 
time of the, the it'll be the close of our camping out in this in this body, and uh, we'll be clothed with with uh, with new bodies. That God will raise the dead and transform us and give us give us something much more wonderful than we have right now. So, uh, so all three of these things are foreshadowing three of the most important things of the whole Christian life. And God was revealing this to Moses 1,400 years in advance. And the third one is the one that we're looking forward to still. So amen to that. Uh, I want to close one more thing that Eusebius saw in this story here, which I didn't see this. Eusebius pointed out to me, and I thought, yeah, he's, he's absolutely right. So it's in, in Proof of the Gospel in, in Book 1. So Eusebius is, is writing around the year 320, and he's writing to Jews and Gentiles to defend the Christian faith and encourage people to become Christians. And uh, <clears throat> one of the questions that people had was, well, wait a minute, you Christians are accepting all the Jewish prophets, but you're not living by the law of Moses. So what's with that? That seems, you know, how does that come about? You, you've embraced all their prophets and all their writings, but you, you don't live the way that they live. So what's with that? And he's explaining to them, he says the law of Moses was just the first step. We're taking the rest of the steps. And he says, there was a problem in the law of Moses. He says, God's plan, he told Abraham from the beginning that his plan was that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his seed. All the families of the earth, all the people of the world, all the nations of the earth be blessed through him. He said, that's God's plan, is to bless all the nations, not just the Jews. And he says, when you go through the, the, the law of Moses, you come to a hard stop at this point right here because he says there is no possible way that all the people of the world could follow this part of the law of Moses. It's impossible. Think about it. He says all the men from every country in the world three times of the year have to get on whatever, a boat, a donkey, and make their way to Jerusalem three times every year. All the men following God in the whole world. He said, that is impossible. That can't happen. Now, as, as impossible as it was back in those days, think about it today. There's, I don't know, seven, seven or eight billion people in the world right now, over two billion going under the name of Christian and let's take, let's say we'll take the men and we'll take the women and children out of it. So let we have a billion men, let's say, who are Christian. Let's cut the number in half. Let's say half a billion. Let's say 500 million. Can you imagine 500 million men descending <laughs> on any one piece of ground on the face of the earth? It's impossible. There's no possible way. It couldn't happen. And this is the point Eusebius is, Eusebius is making at point 320, where they're just, he said, they're Christian. we have Christians all over the world in all these different countries. There's no way they can all come to one place three times a year. Uh, he says, so this, he says, it's clear from the law of Moses, this wasn't a law that all people could follow. It had to be replaced by something better. And in fact, God said in Deuteronomy 18, he, he, he told Moses, he said, in the future, I'm going to send a prophet like you, and the people have to listen to everything he says. So he says, Moses, 
knew this, this law wasn't going to get the job done to, to save the whole world, and there had to be more to come. And this was Jesus, who was the prophet like Moses. And he was a prophet like Moses in that he brought new laws to replace the laws of Moses. He brought in a new covenant. And one of the laws that he brought was, one of the things he changed was, he says, okay, all the men don't have to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Now, when did he say that? Well, uh, actually, I think he said it in, in uh, John chapter 4. Let's turn to John chapter 4. <clears throat> think about this. The Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Jesus, this is after Jesus. Jesus is able to tell the woman her whole life. He says... Uh, uh, he says, go, go, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He says, well, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So he, he completely read her whole life out at that point in time. She realizes this man is a prophet. And so she hits him with the kind of question you'd ask a prophet. So uh, in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our forefathers, she's a Samaritan, our forefathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what... We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such worship, such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So, Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. That was the holy mountain in Samaria. The Jews worshipped God in Jerusalem. That's where you had to go. You're praying, you face Jerusalem. I think the Orthodox Jews still do the same thing today. That that was the center, that's where you go there. You go there three times a year, you face there praying. And Jesus says, the time is coming when that's going to be done away with. It's not going to be Mount Gerizim, it's not going to be Mecca, it's not going to be... Jerusalem, okay, there won't be any one place anymore. That's going to be done away with, just as the, just as the Jewish dietary laws were changed. That he And the only person who have the, the authority to make a statement like that is the prophet like Moses, because he was the one who was going to come, unlike all the other prophets who came after Moses, all the other Jewish prophets, they all said, just do what Moses says. The prophet who was like Moses would be one who has the authority to change the laws, including this one, which would be impossible for all nations to follow. So that's the point Eusebius made, and I think, wow, he's absolutely right. That uh, it's, he, uh, logically, there's no way everybody could do that. Even, even they could follow a lot of the laws of Moses, but this one, this one's impossible for the whole world to follow. So God's plan was always, this, the, the law of Moses is the first step. God's plan was always to save all people. And the wonderful thing to me that I see in these three festivals is that God is telling in advance, 1,400 years in advance, he's foreshadowing how he's going to save the whole world. He's going to save the whole world 
by bringing in the Passover lamb, calling people to get the yeast out, by planting the church 50 days later after the, after the time of the crucifixion, after the Passover, on the day of Pentecost, spreading it out to all nations uh, after that. And then we're waiting for the fulfillment of the Feast of the Tabernacles. The, the Feast of the Beginning of the Harvest has taken place, and we're waiting for the Feast of the End of the Harvest. So uh, we'll pick it up from there in the next, in the next, uh, next lesson. Amen.